the Hand of Glory. In occult lore, the hand was cut from the corpse of a hanged thief and covered in virgin wax and the dead man's tallow. It is said to open any door. But how did the Hand of Glory come to have its fate entwined in the mysteries at the heart of Wormwood? Discover the secrets of this arcane appendage once attached to Dr. Xander Crow as we present Wormwood and the Five Fingers of Glory. Five thrilling tales of mystery and suspense that span the ages. Wormwood and the Five Fingers of Glory, Chapter 5, Left. Written by Paul Montgomery, read by Sonia Perosi. Dedicated to all the children of the night, to the genre writers of today, and all dark and stormy nights to come. To my Hitchcock blonde. You'll find the dedication in that fourth book, the one that everybody forgets, italicized and just off center. It referred to me at the time, but there have been others since. That's what happens with Hitchcock blondes. Whether we're Grace or Tippy doesn't so much matter. We might be the first, we might be the latest, but were never the last. He was torn to promote the third book, the big one. College kids would have carried him on their shoulders between stops back in those days, but his publisher had rented a hearse. Pure camp, but the co-eds devoured it. The black driving gloves, the Lennon sunglasses, the white lily tossed to the girl with the runniest mascara. He'd put a thumb to her chin and her knees would buckle. The doctor's in love. She'd actually fan herself with his book as she slumped to the asphalt, cartoon cherubs racing round her head. Dr. Xander Crow was in. But hell knows why. His socks didn't match his shoes, which, in turn, didn't match his suit. He was English, but not that kind of English. He walked as if he'd just recently fallen down a flight of stairs, and his breath only enhanced that assumption. But where one might expect to find a trail of damp toilet paper, instead was a throng of weeping disciples. Crow was a megastar in the world of popular psychology, or that's how he presented himself. He had his flock, small and passionate and pale. I hated these people. Of course, so did he, when he noticed them. They all asked the same questions. The questions that you ask when you simply want your idol to look at you for a precious handful of seconds. Some weren't even questions, just requests to verify a bit of trivia, obscure or otherwise. Is it true that you convinced everyone in that mental hospital that you were feral? Is it true that you didn't shave or bathe for three months? Is it true that I'm just reciting moments from your book and I have nothing of merit to add to this conversation? Or really any conversation, and I'm just in love with the idea of being in love with you because you don't believe in anything. And oh my god, please, kill me so the lecture can be over and the blonde can clean up the spent coffee cups and flyers so she can leave the bookstore and go back to her apartment and read a novel actually worth fawning over and snuggle with her cat and sleep until tomorrow? By the time he visited my own tiny college in Oregon, he was answering, maybe, to just about everything. They loved his apathy. It was sexier that he didn't give a hoot about the exploits that inspired their lust. I don't need to explain this, do I? You know how punk rock works. You've sat in a cafeteria before. 
Believe me, I read the books. I'll read anything you give me. I'm Matilda with a red wagon, wheeling the legal limit of library books home because nobody else in the house will. It's why I'd worked in six bookstores by the time I was 25. I read the books. I've chuckled reading the books, but it's all conjecture. You have to agree. He's not just an armchair psychologist. He's a lazy boy psychologist. He's full of shit and he's just hurling it out the walls to see what sticks. He liked me because I knew this. He liked me because I asked a question. It was a follow-up question posed to a fluff response. A fair-weather goth with a crow messenger bag nearly did a spit take. It was the first thing I'd said all night. Excuse me, he'd said, more than a little perturbed and entirely delighted. I said, was it entirely fair to condemn the hospital for offering you treatment? He smirked. You're missing the point, my dear. I was pretending to be feral. Contrary to what you may have read in the press, I wasn't actually raised by wolves. Giggles from the peanut gallery. <laughs> so many giggles. Maybe that's not the affliction they were treating. What are you suggesting? Who checked you into the hospital? No one. You signed yourself in? You shambled up to the counter and signed in as feral wolf boy? Again, I'm not sure what you're suggesting. You never published the hospital's report. Maybe they never fell for your game. What if they assumed, going out on a limb here, that you were some kind of extreme narcissist? That your decision to walk into a mental institution wearing a loincloth was a cry for help? What if they weren't a bunch of incompetents and they were actually trying to figure out why someone would, at this point, he was already seated at the signing table, waving for the good little girls to line up for photos and autographs. They all glared at me and I petered off. Crow dabbed the tip of his pen on his tongue. I wasn't wearing a loincloth. Giggles again. An hour later, the last of the books had been signed and the throng had dispersed to the various exits where they hoped to mob Crow as he left for the evening. I was thinking about what people food I might mix in with Percy's cat food to entice him to actually eat for once. You, blonde girl, he said. Henry, yes, I know you're embarrassed, but let me make it up to you. What is it I'm supposed to be embarrassed about? Have you ever driven a hearse? Yes, actually. He looked as if he'd had a stroke. Right, but coffee. What the hell? If nothing else, I could write about this date or whatever it was in my live journal. We sat in the hearse eating drive through food. He told me that I reminded him of his very mean aunt. I tried not to look into this too deeply. <sighs> my cat won't eat. I told him. It was during a time in my life where that was the most of my worries. Let me give it a go, he said. I don't know that this was a ruse to get into my apartment or the bed that I kept there. I honestly think he wanted to prove that he could accomplish this thing that had stumped two different veterinarians and a childhood friend who lived on a farm. He ended up in the bed anyway. I did too. We were there in the bed together, is what I'm saying. Sleeping was part of it. I admit now that we did whatever it is you think we, two consenting adults, did. If we didn't do a particular thing that night, we probably did it or some variation of it on one of the nights, mornings, or afternoons that followed in the next two years. Whatever he did about the cat situation, he did while I was in the bathroom. It worked for about three weeks, at which point Percy curled up and died. I thought this was suspicious for a few seconds. 
Then I realized I'd been telling guests he was 17 years old for a few too many Christmases. I have little, if any, memories of Crow that involve anyone else in particular. It was either a heaving crowd at a book signing or just the two of us. Even in those cases, the moment was always about Crow and Crow alone. He was a great listener in the sense that he could tap any conversation for some kernel that might lead to a new conversation about his own accomplishments, his own ambitions, his own nightmares. In this way, I always thought he'd handle himself well in an underground rap battle, so skilled at making connections, so long as it involved a fanning of his own tail feathers. This isn't something I've only discovered in retrospect either. It was there from those first nights. If he was full of himself, he was at least honest about it. That really is more than you can say of many people. What kind of a name for a woman is Henry? He'd constantly ask. People tell me it makes them feel old if they have to call me Henrietta. You could call me Hank. I could. We were odd people with odd interests. We bonded over things that weren't so odd and said little about the rest. And came the next blonde. She wasn't a grace or tippy this time. She was more of the Pollyanna variety. Eight years old. Innocent. Her name was Samantha Halloway. Her parents said she was possessed by the devil. Crow, of course, saw this as a wonderful challenge. In the beginning, I think he wanted to reveal the parents as the backwoods hicks they were as much as he wanted to help the girl. And then everything changed. Gone was the dashing rock star. He had always had a shoddy attendance record, but where his excuses once involved exotic entanglements and celebrity hobnobbing, he was now likely to be found in the corner of a campus library, rifling through psychological texts. And the odd reference manual on the occult went into a separate stack. And that stack grew as time went on. In the evenings, where we would once watch bootleg episodes of Taxi from a pile of VHS cassettes, we now sat in silence. He seemed to drift away at a moment's notice, mumbling slightly to himself, working out an invisible equation that seemed to have no answer. Occasionally, he would scribble notes on paper. I would find the scraps in the kitchen, the living room, the bathroom. I could never decipher any of them. Crow was a master of the human mind, as he was often keen of boasting. And he was the one person you would never suspect needed to consider his own frailties. I was only a student with a passing interest. I didn't have the resources, so I stuck with what I knew and tried to bring him down. Jed Hirsch, I said, pointing to the stack of unwatched tapes. Hmm, yes, yes. You know, Samantha said the strangest thing today. It wasn't in English. Reverend Jim, I said a little more sternly. He stayed and watched, but he didn't laugh during the commercials. They must have been recorded during a series of late-night marathons during the early 90s. I still have those tapes, and they remain fascinating to me. He stayed in that Thursday, but that was the last such Thursday. I remember it distinctly. It had been a Vic Ferrari episode. Samantha Holloway died. Dr. Xander Crow fell apart. I'd like to tell you that I stayed with him, that I cared for him and nursed him back to health, but that would be lying. I left. I could say it was the drinking, and I have told people that because it was easier. But the truth is much simpler. I was young and no longer in love because he wasn't the same man anymore and because I wasn't prepared to be anyone's caretaker. 
and that would have been the end of things until he knocked on my door one night a year later. I shouldn't have opened the door, but Crow sounded frantic and terrified and I still felt a little guilty. As I opened the door, he burst through, stumbling over me as he did. He held his chest as if it were the only thing keeping his lungs from tumbling out on the floor. His hands were tucked into his armpits, a little boy locked out in the cold. I kicked free from his tangled limbs and then continued kicking until I'd realized he wasn't fighting back. He groaned violently into the carpet, but he didn't thrash or make any effort to get up. I turned him over so I could look him in the eye. I smelled blood and something worse. What happened to your hand? I'll never know. When it's been decided that your ex-boyfriend doesn't want to talk about the events leading to the horrible disfiguration of his right hand, it's not likely that you'll talk about much of anything for the rest of the day. We seemed to instantly reset to where we had been a year prior. He sat on the couch. I brought him food. He hid his hand. We watched all of Taxi. Twice. One night, I woke up to find him standing at the sink. He was looking at the hand again. He didn't hide it from me this time. I stared at the horrible thing. For the first time, I saw the scars that encircled his wrist. What kind of strange disease would cause scars like that? I was too sleepy to process what I was truly seeing. I need to trim my nails, but I can't get my bloody hand to move. I realized that whatever had happened to his hand hadn't changed the fact that he was effectively disabled. He watched me in the mirror as I took the clippers and carefully trimmed the nails on his left hand. After I finished, I reached out for his right hand. He pulled it away. We looked at one another, but we didn't say a word. We went back to bed after that. Eventually, Crow, the real Crow, began to emerge from this withered husk. He figured out how to type one-handed. He began to receive phone calls from strange associates that I had never heard of before. He started going out again. He wouldn't tell me where he was going. So long as he came home with the three remaining limbs, we had little to fight about. He submitted the manuscript for the book with my dedication. There were a few angry calls with his editor. There would be no tour. He gave me a copy of the book, saying that I didn't have to read it. I looked for any mention of the night he returned or what had happened to his hand, but found nothing. I shelved the book and went to a dentist's appointment. The morning Crow left for the final time, we showered together. He made a crude joke about his age and how now that I was no longer his student, he really couldn't offer any academic incentives for sexual favors. I sprayed shampoo in his eyes and went to open up the bookstore. When I returned home, he was gone. No note. I wish I could say I was surprised, but I wasn't. Oddly, I was a little relieved. There had been nights in which Crow tossed and turned in a tortured sleep that his hand, the diseased one, seemed to spring to life, crawling along the bedsheets of its own accord. I would turn away, thrust my arm under my pillow, curl up, and try to sleep. But I could sense its presence. It felt as though an animal was waiting and watching. I imagined it creeping slowly toward my naked back, its leathery yellowed flesh close to my bare thigh. Those were sleepless nights for both of us. I can't say why I decided to look it up. Somehow, after he left, I found myself continuing to think about his strange hand. The disease never spread, and he never seemed concerned that it would. And the scars. So I googled. Hand, I typed. The browser auto-filled the search box, Hand of Glory. I was about to dismiss it, but then I looked at those two words, Of Glory, highlighted. 
I clicked enter. I didn't leave my seat for several hours. When I did, I wandered around campus recalling his strange hand. Tried to assure myself of what I'd seen or hadn't seen. Occam's razor. He came back to me with a strange affliction. Or was it a strange hand? He uses the computer. He searches the phrase hand of glory. I searched through my browser history, discovering odd legends and news stories. A hand of glory is an occult touchstone. It's said to be a hand of a hanged thief, coated in wax and rendered fat. I thought of Crow's desiccated appendage, and I no longer saw disease. As I continued to search, I found stories of a hand that travels from host to host. In a news archive, I discovered a news story about an investigator in San Francisco in 1928 who claimed that his partner was murdered over the occult artifact. A vague reference appears in an online forum discussing the Simon Wrightson collection of New Jersey, which was sold to an anonymous Los Angeles firm in 1967. Nothing about Crow. I had to talk to him. I tried to phone, but the calls went straight to voicemail. Then the number was disconnected. Emails went unanswered. He and his hand were gone. I googled some more the following day. I set up a Google alert for any new mentions of a hand of glory. Almost immediately, I was notified of an internet auction. Someone had put a hand of glory on eBay. The seller promised it was an authentic lefty HOG Arabic in coloring. It was said to have slight pocket wear, which I assume was meant as a joke. There were two JPEG images of the slightly gnarled hand, palm and knuckle sides up. The lot also contained a packet of small wax candles and a woolen glove with a zipper sewn into the opening, a sort of carrying case. I checked to see if the seller was offering a certificate of authenticity. He or she was not. This was the only item offered by the seller. Eighteen hours remained in the auction. I placed the first bid. Wormwood, a serialized mystery, is a podcast production of Habit Forming Films, LLC. Original music compositions by Todd Hodges. Introduction and credits read by Joe J. Thomas. The Wormwood writing staff includes David Acampo, Jeremiah Allen, Rob Allspaugh, Paul Montgomery, Jeremy Rogers, and Tiffany K. Whitney. Wormwood created by David Acampo and Jeremy Rogers. Copyright 2009. Wormwood cannot be reproduced in part or whole without the express written consent of its creators. For more information on the cast, creators, and individual episodes, please visit us on the web at www.wormwoodshow.com. Thank you for listening, and welcome to town.